First, I invite you to take your Bibles and turn over to Psalm 118. We're going to be walking through this psalm together this morning, at least uh, through its main sections, though I want to go ahead and let you know this is a little bit of a different Sunday for us than what we're accustomed to. Our plan for this morning is different from what it normally is. Uh, Tuesday's a big day, October 31st, Halloween, right kids? We all know what Halloween means for us Americans. It means costumes and candy and cavities. Dentists love this holiday. Did you know, though, that Halloween is also an important anniversary in the history of Christianity? Sometimes this day is called Reformation Day. It was on October 31st, the day before a a popular, important religious festival in Europe, that a man named Martin Luther posted a document called the 95 Theses to the door or bulletin board of the church in his village It was a document that laid out some arguments that he wanted to make against abuses that he saw in the medieval church. Now that that document that he pounded onto that door that day wasn't exactly the beginning and it certainly wasn't the end of what we now call the Protestant Reformation. But it was an important moment. It was a document that brought on a firestorm of controversy that Luther himself couldn't have ever imagined. And this year marks the 500th anniversary of the day Luther nailed those theses to the door. So on Tuesday, it's a big day for those of us who care about church history. I'm actually a lot better trained to teach church history than I am to be a pastor of a church. I've spent a lot of years training at that. And this is big big for us church historians. Let me just tell you, we've been getting a lot of attention lately that we're not accustomed to getting. uh, This uh, 500th anniversary has been showing up in conferences, Books have been published about it, but even the mainstream media is starting to take notice of us, at least for a, a brief window until people's attention shifts elsewhere. And there's even been kids' toys made to celebrate the 500th anniversary. I've been getting, I've been getting emails about Martin Luther bobbleheads available for purchase, and somebody even gave me, earlier this year, a Martin Luther Playmobil figure. Do you guys know what Playmobil figures are? They're big in my house. These little, they're not like Legos. They're European. They, 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 they usually inhabit all sorts of imaginative worlds like Westerns and firemen and SWAT teams and medieval knights and what have you. Well, they made up a Martin Luther one, complete with his black academic robe and a quill pen for his hand and a parchment on which something foreign language was, was written. By now he's already, though, he's, he's, he is well integrated into the collision of cultures that is the Playmobil bend at my home. I think he's got a, got a fireman's hat on by now and some sort of medieval battle axe in one hand and maybe like a SWAT walkie-talkie in the other hand. But it's pretty cool that, 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 that they actually came up with these toys. We've been getting, this is a big moment for us. I'm just going to leave it at that. So we figured we'd make the most of it. In all seriousness, it's important that you know something of this story. It's important that you know why and how we Christians uh, living today have benefited from what happened in Luther's life and ministry. So we wanted to set aside Sunday closest to that anniversary in the midst of our psalm series to talk about what Luther helped clarify in the history of the church, clarify for us. What about the message of of redemption through Jesus 
Luther helped to bring to the surface and, and to put a point on. And we wanted to do that by weaving it into the series and the Psalms that we're already enjoying together. So what we decided to do was focus this morning on Psalm 118 for a couple of reasons. One, the Psalms in general were really, really critical for Luther. When he was coming to his own conversion and to understand God's grace in a new and different way, one of the main agents God used in his life was a teaching series that he did through the Psalms. But even more specifically than the Psalms in general, this Psalm stood out in particular for Luther. Listen to what he said about Psalm 118. He said, this is my Psalm, my chosen Psalm. I love them all. I I love all Holy Scripture, which is my consolation and my life. But this psalm is nearest my heart. And I have a peculiar right to call it mine. It has saved me from many a pressing danger from which neither emperor nor kings nor sages nor saints could have saved me. It is my friend, dearer to me than all the honors and power of the earth. We also wanted to focus on Psalm 118, not just because it was his favorite, not just because the Psalms were important to him, but because this Psalm in particular also has themes woven throughout it that actually help us to see more clearly what it is Luther discovered for himself by God's grace in his life and what he helped to clarify for us, the, the, the themes from the Bible that are spread throughout the whole Bible's teaching that we can see more clearly now, thanks in part to what God did through him. So what I want to do is tell you Luther's story using some of the themes from Psalm 118 to, to, to frame it. That's unusual for us. It's intentional on our part that normally we come to whatever text is next and let it dictate what we say and how. Call this a once in a 500 years opportunity for you at Trinity. God help us to see the message of his word through the life of his servant. I want to begin by, uh, by reading the whole thing. I'm going to ask you to stand with me in honor of God's word. While I read to us from Psalm 118, this is the word of the Lord. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let Israel say, his steadfast love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say, his steadfast love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say, His steadfast love endures forever. Out of my distress, I called on the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me free. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. All nations surrounded me. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me, surrounded me on every side. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me like bees. They went out like fire among thorns. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. I was pushed hard so that I was falling, but the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Glad songs of salvation are in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly 
The right hand of the Lord exalts. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. The Lord has disciplined me severely, but he has not given me over to death. Open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God, and he has made his light to shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I will give thanks to you. You are my God, and I will extol you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. For his steadfast love endures forever. This is God's word. You can be seated. I've broken down the psalm and our story this morning into four sections. Four themes that come out of the psalm that overlap nicely with the major uh, movements in Luther's life. I want to begin with the first one. The first thing to notice about this psalm and something that gives us insight into Luther's context is God's steadfast love. Did you notice the psalm opens with a theme we've been seeing all over the psalms during our series? God's love is not like us, not like our love, not like our our lives, not like everything else that's around us. God's love is steadfast when everything else changes. That's why it starts with this repeated call to give thanks for his steadfast love endures. That call, a call to Israel to say his steadfast love endures. And to the house of Aaron and to all those who fear, fear the Lord with this echoing call that the psalm begins and ends with celebrating God's steadfast love. What we know about ourselves, what we've experienced from each other, from pretty much everything else in life is change. Our thoughts change sometimes. We change our minds. Our emotions rise and fall. Our wills are sometimes strong, but sometimes weak. They're affected by all sorts of opportunities and temptations and distractions all around us. We are not stable. And neither is wealth or work. Neither are our relationships. Everything is subject to change. Except God's love. God's love is not like ours. It is steadfast, fixed, immovable, rock solid, constant. And that's why for Israel and for the psalmist and for the Christian, everything depends on God's love. Now what we know from our own experience about our lives and everything around us being unstable, changing, fragile, was something that was even more obvious to medieval people. In Luther's time. In graduate school, one of the textbooks that we used to study this period was written by a man named Carter Lindbergh. And one of the things he says about the period just before Luther's life, about Europe during the time that Luther was born into, was that they were experiencing at that time what he calls a security crisis. 
They were marked by, in their minds, their hearts, in their world around them, profound insecurity. And they had good reasons to feel insecure. Across all levels of society, rich and poor, rural and urban, this crisis showed up. There were social structures that they'd taken for granted for centuries that were changing now. About 100 years-ish, 100, 150 years before Martin Luther's birth, there was a plague known as the Black Death that swept across Europe and, and killed just unthinkable amounts of people. So tens of millions were killed. Uh, estimates are always a little bit rough, and hard, hard to nail down these numbers, but as much as a third of the population of Europe, some calculate. Now think about that. One out of three people in the continent dead to the plague. Alongside the plague, they experienced what's known as the Hundred Years' War. You know why it's called the Hundred Years' War? It lasted like a hundred years. Off and on, off and on, off and on, but constant for a hundred years. At a time when they were developing new weapons and new technologies to make warfare even more destructive than it had been before. There were famines brought on by the fact that many, many people were moving from the rural areas where they'd done a lot of farming so that everybody had enough food into the cities where they were packed in like sardines. And, and, and food shortages could have this domino effect that could leave many people, many people killed. Life was fragile. It's always been true. They knew it. They had, they had reasons to see it more clearly than maybe we do. They were subject and they, they knew they were subject to all sorts of forces that they couldn't resist, much less control. So in their insecurity, people in Luther's day in Europe would turn to the church. They turned to the church for one of their main sources of security in a world that was insecure. It's a place they turned with their fears, looking for peace. To some extent for peace in this life, for for control of the forces that might affect our bodies now, but even more for peace about the afterlife. With death all around them, people were worried about what happens when you die. They lived with that. On a daily basis, that was in their minds and their hearts. So they turned to the church for some security. But what they often found in the church of of medieval Europe in that time were ideas and practices that actually made people feel less secure, not more. Let me tell you what I mean. This, this is a really important part of Luther's context to make sense of, of what he was born into, what he grew up in, and what he helped to rediscover and clarify for us. There was a belief that was popular at that time that God's grace came to sinners through the church, only through the church, through its practices like baptism and communion and confession and, and gifts of money and a host of other things. There was a lot of grace involved. It wasn't that there wasn't grace but the, the understanding that they, that they lived with was that, that God gives grace to sinners, but then requires sinners to cooperate with what he gives them. So, for example, at baptism, the belief was that there was grace that's infused, put into the person who was baptized, that infant. Kind of a boost that God gives them to be able to live obedient lives from that point forward. They were then meant to do, called to do, a common phrase at the time was to do what lies within you, to do your best, to obey God, using, relying on the grace that he's put into your life through baptism and other, and other resources of the church. You do what's your best. Not exactly meeting him halfway, but absolutely a cooperation involved. Now, if you sin after that initial boost, 
it was taught that you bring on a debt that has to be made up. That you, that you, that you actually have an account. Think of it like an account that you could, where you can build up credit or spend down credit or pile up debt even. And after baptism, that grace has, has already done its thing. You're going to need some new way to chip away at the, the mountain of debt that you've brought on yourself by sinning, by continuing to sin. So there was a system known as the penitential system. There's a cycle where when, when you sin, you respond by, by confessing that sin to a confessor. You receive absolution or for a certain level of forgiveness from that confessor. That, that confessor would then give you some good works to do to sort of offset the cost of what you've done. Um, and, and then you would, you, would, you would try to follow out the plan that he set for you and also look for other opportunities to do things that the church told you were, were, were honored by God and would, would bring more grace into your account. So things like gifts to the poor, gifts to the church, things like fasting, things like uh, extra masses that you would either, either participate in or pay for. There was a whole system of things that you could do to build up that credit. Now, the problem was, what if you sinned again? Then what if you sinned again? Then what if you sinned again? People were trapped in a cycle that they couldn't avoid or escape. And you couldn't be sure that when you died, when you did die, you would have done enough to offset the cost of your sin. people turning to the church of that era for security found more insecurity about what would happen to them when they died. It's one reason if you travel in Europe today and you go visit a medieval uh, cathedral, what you may see around the, the main hall of the cathedral are small chapels all the way around. Those are relics from that, that era and the penitential system was strong and thriving. If you were wealthy enough, you could, you could hire a priest who would stand in a chapel, one of those chapels, and offer mass for you on your behalf throughout the day, each day. You could hire a priest to do that for you after you had died, believing that, that, that your sins had trapped you in a, in a, a world called, known as purgatory, where, where, where unpaid for sins need to be made up before you could be worthy to go into heaven. So you, you could pay for yourself or for your loved ones to have these masses said on your behalf, piling up that credit. But you can see how, though these resources were offered as solutions for the problem of sin as grace from God to you so that you can be made worthy of him and of heaven they actually just made people feel more secure insecure you couldn't know for sure where you stood you're always trying to save up trying to minimize what you'd have to do after you died how could you be how do you know if you if you've done enough the only thing you could do is try harder if you want to know you've done enough keep doing what you can see, and the reason we started with these first four verses, is that there was a focus that was lost. A focus on God's steadfast love that's fixed and immovable and rock solid. A love that never wavers, that never changes, that isn't tied to our performance at all. Israel's history, if it illustrates anything, is that God just keeps on loving over and over again, they respond to his grace with neglect, with idolatry, with, with even frustration that he hadn't given them more. And over and over and again, God just keeps loving and keeps loving and keeps loving. 
in this time of insecurity, focus had been taken off of this steadfast love of God. Luther would have to learn this through his study of the Psalms. I want to take you next to God's gracious answers. That's God's steadfast love. That's the starting point of our psalm. That was the context, the loss of emphasis on God's steadfast love was a context in which Luther made sense, in which he grew up and, and came to understand the gospel for himself. Luther's breakthrough came when he learned the message of verse 5. Out of my distress I called on the Lord, the psalmist writes. The Lord answered me and set me free. That simple. Luther was born near the end of the 1400s to a middle-class mining family in Germany. His father was successful enough to provide an education for his son, like a lot of fathers before and since. It was important to him that he provide his son a better future than what he had had. And also, like many fathers since that time, he wanted his son to become a lawyer. And Luther was well on his way. He went and got his education at at a university uh, he was well on his way to, to becoming a, an educated lawyer and had come home until he had come home for a visit one day. Was walking back on his journey back to the campus and got caught out in a terrible storm. Lightning striking all around him. No shelter for him. He thought he would die. In his terror, he cries out to St. Anne the patron saint of miners like his father. And he promises to Saint Anne that if he survives this storm, he'll become a monk. And he survived, and he became a monk, much to the disappointment of his father. Uh, Disappointing, the father's been disappointed by the decision to go into seminary before and since, that's nothing new. Uh, So he goes into, he becomes a monk and throws himself fully immerses himself completely into a quest to reach salvation. He was tormented by insecurity. He did everything he possibly could to earn more credit. Now, the monk's lifestyle at that time was already really demanding. It was a long schedule, a lot of really early mornings and late nights, a lot of worship services you had to go to, a lot of prayers to offer, fasting, a whole system that was demanding. And Luther did all that, plus added his own stuff on top of that. He was going to services beginning at 2 a.m. every morning. He would repeat prayers throughout the day. He would meditate. He would beat up his own body through fasting longer than was required, through, through sleeping long, cold nights in his cell without any blankets. All punishments meant to offset his sins, trying to bring himself some peace. Here's another example. Because it was, uh, because it was believed at the time that only sins that were confessed could be forgiven... Luther was obsessed that he might miss something, forget to confess something that he should have confessed and be condemned for it. So he would go to his confessor. There was a, a man in his life that was a mentor for him, one of his teachers who also served as his, as his confessor. He would bring his sins to this man, trying to make sure he got everything, covered everything. And one, as one historian puts it, he would confess for hours. Then he would walk away and come running right back because he forgot something. It got to be such a problem that once his confessor supposedly said to him, look here, Brother Martin, if you're going to confess so much, why don't you go and do something worth confessing? Kill your mother or father. Commit adultery. Quit coming in here with such flumery and fake sins. And it wasn't just that Luther worried he hadn't confessed everything. He worried, too, that he hadn't confessed with the right motive, even if he got to all the right sins. 
listed them all. He was afraid that in his heart, he would have been motivated more by fear than by genuine sorrow, and that that means it wouldn't count. He was a mess. He was hating himself, and he was terrified of God. Things began to change when Luther started preparing and teaching lessons from the books of the Bible. It was a new part of his job. Once his training was completed, he took a job in a town called Wittenberg where he was on staff of their, on the faculty of their university and one of his jobs was to teach Bible and theology. So in, in, in the teens, of 15 teens, Luther spent many of those years unpacking the Psalms through regular teaching and preaching sessions. Then he unpacked Galatians and he unpacked Romans. We have those lectures. They're published now today. You can find them in a bookstore. And as Luther was digging around in the Bible for himself, as he was reading and grappling with the message of the Scriptures, the ancient words of God to us, he began to see new things in the Bible. He began to recognize an altogether different message about God's grace than the one he'd been practicing. God's grace was not something bartered for, not something earned, but something given in Jesus once and for all. He looks back on this time years later in his life, looking back on these crucial years where he was coming to see the gospel anew, and he remembers studying Romans 1, the passage that Seth read from earlier this morning. He remembers getting to Romans 1 where, where, where Paul writes that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to all who believe. In it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. Luther said that, that always he had come across that verse and he'd heard this message of hope about the gospel, but then he gets hit in the face with this message about God's righteousness. As, and, and, and when he was reading it is righteousness, God's righteousness is some sort of demand God puts on my life. It's something, some standard I'm supposed to meet. So the gospel is only good news for me if I can reach the standard that's required of me. The gospel belongs to those who can mirror God's righteousness in their own lives. That's what he thought. But then one day, God showed himself to Luther. Coming, reading through those very verses, Luther recognized righteousness of God is not a requirement of me, but a gift to me. It's the righteousness that belongs to God and is given by faith to all who believe in Jesus. There is one way and one way only to be righteous, Luther discovered, and that is to trust in Christ. For all have sinned, Paul writes in Romans 3, and fall short of the glory of God. All, that means anyone who's ever justified and made right is justified as a gift by faith in Jesus. Luther discovered God's love was steadfast. Or in the words of Psalm 118, Luther discovered what the psalmist had. Out of my distress, I called on the Lord. And the Lord answered me and set me free. I think Luther loved this psalm partly because it opened with what God showed him at his most desperate time. And friend, what you need to know today is that God will show you the same thing if you cry out to him like Luther did. What you need to know is that any time any of us are experiencing insecurity in our faith, any wavering on where we stand before God, that always comes. It's always a sign that we've lost focus on God's love. That instead of thinking about God's love, which is steadfast and offered to us freely through Jesus, we've begun to focus on something else, on something less secure, on something like our will, 
our heart motives, our performance this week, the dependability of the other people in our life. One way or another, some other hope has intruded and it can't bear the weight that we're putting on it. And our insecurity is a sign of that truth and an opportunity to turn back to God's love, the only thing that lasts. What Luther learned in his life, you can learn today. You do not have to relate to God as if you only get as much of his love as you can pay for. That is not how he looks onto you. His love doesn't rise and fall with what you offer. There is one thing and one thing only that matters in you. That is your faith. Cry out and he will answer just like he did for Luther. That's, how, that's where his breakthrough came from. God's promise to listen and answer. What Luther found out from that point in his life forward is that God's strong right hand is worth trusting. We talked a lot about the personal journey that Luther went on to figure out, to come to grips with, to see more clearly the heart of the gospel that's taught all through the Bible. I want to shift now to a little bit more of his public impact. So what we're, rep- what we're commemorating on Tuesday with this anniversary. And, and I, I think that what brought into Luther's life a lot of the challenges that made this psalm such a sweet one to him. So the next few verses of our psalm, verse 6 through verse 18, are, are the words of the, a king. We don't know who it was, someone from Israel's history, who was in distress who is pressed in by threats outside of him on every side, surrounded by, by things that he couldn't resist on his own or much less control. And he discovered in his darkest hour that God was for him, that he didn't have to have a strong right hand of his own because he could trust God's strong right hand. And I think Luther saw in the king's experience, a lot of his own experience, when his document propelled him into the public eye in a way he never could have imagined and brought on him mortal danger that he lived with for the rest of his life, not to mention the angst, the internal struggle of being a voice that people were actually listening to and following at great cost to themselves. Luther was in the middle of teaching through these books in his college town, these, through Psalms and Galatians and Romans, growing not just in his own understanding of God's grace, growing not just in his, his, his grip on the importance of faith alone, but also growing in his love for the people that he was pastoring. And so things got stirred up in him when a traveling salesman named Johann Tetzel came to town selling something called indulgences. So I mentioned a minute ago that at the, in the church at the time, there was a very prominent, powerful system known as the penitential system where, where you would, that was set up so that you could offset the cost of your sins after baptism. One way that you could do that, one of the tools that you had in your arsenal, was to purchase things known as indulgences. The church was believed to have what they called a treasury of merit, of good deeds, that um, you, could, you could receive from them, either by gift or by doing some good work, like buying, paying for uh, one of these documents known as an indulgence. The indulgences would be sold at times where the church needed to raise money for something. So in this case, uh, the St. Peter's Basilica, there was plans for construction of St. Peter's, this glorious building in Rome, and they had, it cost a lot of money to do that. And so this indulgences campaign, if you will, was part of how they were funding that building project. So Johann Tetzel was their secret weapon. He was the best thing they had going. He was famous 
he, would, he, he, had, uh, he was way ahead of his time in promotion, in marketing. He would send out advanced men ahead of him into the towns where he was going to raise demand for what he was coming to bring, to let people know, to spread the word. He'd give incredible pitches with moving, almost revivalistic type images of your loved ones in torment, in purgatory. And he even had a little jingle that he would reportedly use to help people remember his message. It goes like this. As soon as the coin into the box rings, a soul from purgatory springs. Now, now Luther knew from his own experience what kind of captivity that way of thinking brings to the human soul. He knew that besides the fact that the poor were being exploited, tricked into giving the resources they couldn't do without, he knew that that way of thinking about God's grace keeps souls in bondage and fear. It dishonors Jesus. It cheapens what Jesus has already done. So Luther... To def- basically to defend his people, wrote up a document now, we now know as the 95 Theses. 95 arguments. The 95 was just, that's how many he got to, I guess, before he ran out of time and decided to post it. There's no special thing to that number. Theses just means arguments. It's just a long list of arguments. And it was real common in his day for professors to swap these things with one another. If you wanted to start a debate, you'd just come up with your theses, here's my arguments, and then you'd post it somewhere in public and invite others to step to you and see what they got. So Luther was just practicing what university professors all around him were doing. This was nothing unusual. And Luther seems to have believed that, that actually the abuses of a guy like Tetzel weren't known to his superior. So he sends a copy of his document to Tetzel's boss. He's like, you need to know what this guy is doing. He's saying these things. You've got to fix this. He still at the time believed that, that if the, the people in power got the message about what was happening, they would respond and, and make changes. But his document touched a nerve that ran all the way to the top in Rome. His document set off public arguments with scholars that the church put up against Luther to try to expose him as a fraud. It inspired demands that he take back his views and threats at what would happen if he didn't. And all the while, through this process, which took three, four years, Luther, through wrestling, through actually having arguments with real people that he could talk to, is sharpening his own views. He's clarifying his understanding of the Bible. He's deepening his conviction that that massive changes need to happen. These were intense and productive and dangerous years in Luther's life. The next four years after the document was posted. And I think that another reason he loved Psalm 118 was for the king's description of God's faithfulness even when everyone else was against him. From verses 6 to 11, there are a lot of these references. The Lord is on my side, the psalmist says. What can man do to me? Luther needed to hear that. It's better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. He surely clung to those words. All nations surrounded me. That happened to him. They surrounded me on every side. That was his life. They surrounded me like bees, like a swarm all around me. They, they spread against me like a fire and dry thorns. The reason this fits Luther's experience so much is that what he touched off didn't just stay as a debate among fellow professors. It wasn't just insider baseball amongst church leaders. 
it also went straight to the civil powers all the way up to the emperor himself. In 1521, four years after Luther had posted his 95 theses, he was summoned before the emperor at an infamous meeting called the Diet of Worms. Now, it looks like Diet of Worms, and what you're thinking is they were eating worms. But actually, diet just means, is just what they called their imperial summits. Uh, and then Worms was just the title of a city where they had this diet. Not as interesting, but that's the story there. By this point, in 1521, Luther had published a lot of things. He published pamphlets that were devoured, that were popular, swept across Europe. He published, um, he, 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 had, he had been part of these huge public debates with other celebrity thinkers. There were a lot more people who were seeing what Luther was saying, hearing it, and responding to it. His ideas, as I've said, were already more and more clarified, and, and, and the reality of what kind of challenge his ideas meant for the way things were was lost on nobody, including the emperor. So he's summoned to this meeting, and along the way he passes through crowds who came out to see him and to cheer for him. He preaches to packed churches all along his route. But surely by the time he reaches that city, the reality of what he'd done, of what he was caught up in, had to have settled on him. He would have known that a hundred years early, another man named John Huss, not far from, from Germany, over in, in, um, in the Czech, what's now the Czech Republic, had made similar suggestions for change, had been called to a very similar meeting, had been given a very similar promise of safe passage from the emperor, had refused to recant his views, and had been burned at the stake soon after. I try to imagine what Luther must have been thinking as he rolled into the city and as he began to see this, what surely would have been banners of these imperial dignitaries everywhere. This meeting had everybody. The emperor and his minions, the nobles, the, 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 the biggest powers in the church. They brought Luther into a, a room where they were all seated all around him. I think of this verse, all the nations surrounded me. That's what he saw. This was a professor not, probably not used to having his ideas taken very seriously by anybody but his students. And here he is pulled from the dusty cloisters libraries where he felt at home and pl- plopped down right here in the middle of the powers of his known world. Now his ideas weren't just fodder for debate. They weren't just interesting things to talk out with your friends. He was held accountable for those ideas at the cost of his life, potentially. Many of you are academics. Can you imagine whether you would stand by your arguments if that were the stakes. They piled his writings up in front of him. They told him to recant what he'd written. And for a moment, a moment of of understandable human weakness and fear, he wavered. Luther asked him if he could have a night to think it over. Before he answered, he spent that night surely in prayer. I wonder if he remembered verse 13 of Psalm 118. I was pushed hard so that I was falling. But the Lord helped me. Luther made it through that night and he entered that hall once again the next morning. And this is what he told them. Unless I am convinced by the testimony of the scriptures or by clear reason, I am bound by the scriptures I have quoted. 
and my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and will not retract anything since it is neither safe nor right to go against conscience. I cannot do otherwise. Here I stand. May God help me. Amen. Luther was condemned for his views that day. Not just excommunicated by the church, though he was, but made an outlaw by the empire. There was a price on his head. Soon after the meeting, his friends kidnapped him and took him to a castle where he could hide out while things settled down. And he would spend the rest of his life wary, not able to travel freely, often in hiding. But whether he was in hiding or in the pulpit or in his study or in his classroom, he kept on with this work. He had a remarkably productive life. He translated the Bible into German. One of his main burdens was that the people be able to see what he saw from the scriptures themselves, to not have to depend on others to teach them using languages they often couldn't understand, but but to put the words of God into words of his people. He translated the New Testament into German. He, He wrote theological works, of course, but also tons of practical resources for the churches. He was concerned for the people. He wrote a catechism to help teach people basic truth about the gospel. He wrote commentaries on things like the Ten Commandments that were accessible and you were able to give, put into people's hands. He wrote hymns, a couple of which we're going to sing later on. And at one period, in hiding in a castle, he wrote a translation and comment on this psalm, Psalm 118. Looking at his own life and at what God was doing in churches around him, by this time the the, the reforms that he had suggested were starting to sweep across Europe, not just in Germany, but in other countries as well. Looking at what God was doing, surely he knew what the psalmist meant in verses 14 to 16. The Lord is my strength and my song and has become my salvation. The right hand of God does valiantly. It's his work. Luther was watching and Luther knew it. How does one man from an obscure village and a professor's job stand up to an empire of opposition? That's the question we should ask of this history. Because this was God's work, not his. And he had no reason to fear. While he's hiding in this castle, working on this psalm, he writes on the wall of his cell the words of verse 17. I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. I think of the last verse of Mighty Fortress that we sing sometimes. That word above all earthly powers, no thanks to those earthly powers, abideth. The spirit and the gifts are ours through him who with us sideth. Those are words straight out of the psalm. The body they may kill, he, he writes. God's truth abideth still, and his kingdom is forever. Luther wrote of this psalm. He, the psalmist, so immerses himself in life that death is swallowed up by life and disappears completely because he clings with a firm faith to the right hand of God. Thus all the saints have sung this verse and will continue to sing it to the end. So far as the world is concerned, they die. Yet their hearts say with a firm faith, I shall not die but live. Steadfast by faith alone. 
Luther's life was all about making the beauty and the power and the love of Jesus clear and inviting to anyone who would enjoy him by faith. And that's why, friends, Luther would be furious if I ended this morning anywhere but Jesus. He'd be furious if the punchline of this sermon and this psalm were anything but his Savior. Because he loved this psalm not just because he saw his own experience in it. I've tried to bring that out some, that, that he could have prayed this prayer as his own. He loved it, no, not just because he saw his own experience in it, but because he saw Jesus through it. He saw his Savior through it. By the time of Jesus, this psalm, Psalm 118, had taken on a huge importance for the Jewish people. They saw it as a prediction of the Messiah. It's one reason that this psalm is quoted in the New Testament more often than any other psalm. Something like 23 times it's quoted. This psalm was was part of a, a ritual that the people of Israel would enact every time they celebrated Passover. It was the last psalm to be read during, out of a group of psalms that would be read every Passover. When Jesus approached Jerusalem to celebrate Passover with his friends before giving up his life to save sinners, he was greeted at the entrance to that city by crowds who celebrated him using this psalm. They cried out to him, Hosanna! A quote from verse 25. Save us, we pray, O Lord. They cried out to him, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. A direct quote from verse 26 of this psalm. While he was in Jerusalem, while he was spending his final days on earth teaching people who he was and what he was about to do, Jesus himself cites this psalm several times. You can read it in Matthew chapter 21 and Matthew chapter 23. What does that tell us? He was thinking about it. He, was, he, he had this psalm and its, its themes weighing on his mind and his heart while he numbered his days. I imagine him there in the room with his friends celebrating Passover, reading through the traditional liturgies together, reading over this psalm, him knowing what they don't yet know, that soon he will be the cornerstone rejected by the builders. I wonder if he was reminding himself that the Lord is his strength and song. Surely, at the very least, he was meditating on verses 17 and 18. I will not die but live. The Lord has disciplined me severely. I will take on myself the sins of the world and I will pay what they owe. But he has not given me over to death. He carried that hope with him from the room where they feasted into the garden where he prayed and wept and waited. And from there, Jesus experienced a rejection that we can't even imagine. He was scorned by the ones that he came to save. He was rejected by the ones who should have known better. The builders themselves looked at this stone and it didn't seem to fit. Its edges weren't right. The dimensions were off. They threw it into a trash heap to be buried rather than building around it with the the stone God had given them. But this rejected stone, precisely because it was rejected, this rejected stone has become the cornerstone. How? This is the Lord's doing, verse 23 says. It's the Lord's doing. And it is marvelous in our eyes. 
Peter would have sung this psalm with Christ on the night that he was betrayed. And Peter took up this psalm for himself in his earliest teaching on who Jesus is. Peter had a Martin Luther moment told to us in Acts chapter 4. He was called before the powers that be and he was asked to give an account for the ministry he had been doing. And he looked at those powers surrounding him like bees. And he told those powers, Acts chapter 4, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And Peter said, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. One and only one is enough. And friends, that's why we celebrate. Not just now, on the 500th year of this event in church history, as important as it was, but every single Sunday, gathering on the day of Jesus' resurrection to tell to the Lord, this is the day the Lord has made. A day of freedom and hope. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Father, help us to keep this message that we've been given. A message of one and only one hope through which we can be saved. Not our own will, not our own performance, not any resource given to us by any powers that be, but Jesus, rejected by men, made the chief cornerstone of a building of God. We want to find rest and refuge in him. We ask you to help us in Jesus' name. Amen.